Exodus 34 in Hebrews 9, please, this morning. This is the one of the very few Sundays where I'm going to have to bounce right afterwards, sorry, and I wish I could stay to greet you as we usually do in the hall, especially our, I see many visitors today, I would do my heart good to greet you all, but this is one of those very few Sundays where I got to bounce. So I'll therefore preach something extremely controversial <clears throat> and reproving and save up all the reproof and correction and rebuking <laughs> for today. Not really. As you have noticed, or some of you may have not, we haven't, we've sort of eliminated the offertory, I guess that's what you call it if you're religious, from our, the official offering from our services. But I've noticed very vaguely because I don't usually, I'm not usually aware of the financial picture except to be aware of it in res as responsible <clears throat> pastor of the church. But I am very grateful for your generosity and for the kindness that you've shown in that realm toward the ministry. Your, in most cases, invisible generosity has allowed us as a ministry to be generous and to be benevolent. And that's been our heart all along is to increase our benevolence, to be agents of benevolence to others. We've been able to be a great blessing to other ministries that are doing work that we can't do ourselves. Samaritan's Purse comes into mind. The Light of Life Mission in Pittsburgh, doing wonderful work, comes to mind. Salvation Army, as always, and certain missions. And so I just wanted to express my gratitude and to welcome you all here today, especially those who are visiting, especially one or two back from the dead. And always grateful to be here. Moses boldly asked Yahweh, the one whose name is I Am, please show me your glory. His glory is similar to his majesty. It's a similar word. Moses made that bold request in Exodus 33:18. If you want to be making that request, it is a bold request because if you request it, you are responsible for that revelation of him in some regards. And so to be responsible with it for the rest of your life is quite the thing. Please show me your glory. Somewhere along the line, I know I've prayed that, and I know probably you have prayed that along with Moses. For that display, Moses was, by divine instruction, to stand upon the rock, the rock that is higher than I, and God placed him in an opening in the rock. Some have I think rightly related this, the rock to Christ. Paul did himself in 1 Corinthians 10.4. The opening in the rock to the tear in the side of Jesus where we're all hiding. And God covered him with his hand until he had passed by. And so God paraded by with his majesty. He passed by him. And held his hand over the place where Moses was in the crevice or the cleft of the rock. And Moses saw his back, but his face was not seen by Moses. That's all found in Exodus 33:18 to 23. When the time came for this event, for this parading of the majesty of the Lord before Moses... The Lord came down on Mount Sinai in a cloud, and according to Exodus 34, and I peruse quite carefully the Septuagint translation as well as the Hebrew and many English translations on this 
Exodus 34, 6 and 7, in fact, really through 8. And it's, in one sense, it's a very difficult passage because you have God proclaiming his mercy and then you have him holding the guilty, guilty, not clearing the guilty. And so it seems to be, on the surface, a difficult and even self-contradictory thing. But let me give you the translation. Yahweh proclaimed as he passed by in his glory. Now we know in 2 Corinthians, Paul compared himself with Moses. And Paul did see the face of Yahweh. And the only way we see the face of Yahweh and live is to see that face in Yeshua, Jesus, the Messiah. We with open face, not masked face like Moses, but with open face, behold as in a mirror the glory of the Lord and are changed into that same image from one degree of glory to the next. We see shining in the face of Jesus Christ the knowledge of the glory of God. And it shines into our hearts. And it does so through the ministry of the word. That's why we're here. It does so through the ministry of the word. And the transformation happens by the Lord, the spirit. He whom David called the hegemonic spirit, the governing spirit, the Lord, the spirit, the Holy Spirit. So in verse 34, chapter 34, verse 6, Yahweh proclaimed, Yahweh Yahweh, the Lord God, is a compassionate and merciful God. As he introduces himself and proclaims his own name, his first references are to mercy. In the Greek, the oiktyrmos for compassion is a synonym for mercy and merciful God. Then he says patient. And very merciful. That's an interesting word, that very merciful. In fact, I think I put it in the, it'll be in the title on the printed page. It's the word eleos, which is mercy, with a prefix polu, which means much. So it's P-O-L-U in the Greek. And then E-L-E-O-S. Palu Elios, Elios, mercy. Palu Elios, much mercy, very merciful. So when God introduces himself and parades his majesty before Moses, it is as he mouths the words about himself, very merciful. The New Testament really plays on this and in fact fans out this whole idea of very merciful as we've seen in Romans 9.15, Calvinists like to quote it, I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. That was also in God's conversation with Moses. I will show mercy to whom I will show mercy. Some of my Calvinist friends stop short there and limit God's election. For the very merciful God, Paulu Eleos, says in Romans 11.32 that he shows mercy to all. So he wills to show mercy to whom he wills to show mercy. But he has willed to show mercy to all. And he has done so in Jesus Christ, who not by accident is called our merciful high priest. In Hebrews 2.17, that's Hebrews. You know what I'm doing here in Hebrews? I'm doing an exegesis of Hebrews, but it's like sleep dentistry. You don't even know what's being you're being worked on there are things if if you read hebrews through and i just recently read the first 200 messages i did which is about 800 900 pages perused it a little bit read some of it thoroughly skimmed some of it just so i could see certain messages that need to be repeated and need to be repeated for our benefit but an exegesis of this great heavenly homily is occurring, but you don't even really know it. It's not like we're taking the next verse and saying this Greek word, this Greek word, this Greek word. It's really something going beyond that. And someday you'll wake up and all the work will be done. 
Paulo Eleos. Paulo Eleos. The Lord God. This is the Lord himself speaking of himself in a self-description, in a self-introduction to Moses, the intermediary of the Old Covenant. Compassionate and merciful, patient. Peter wrote of Paul that all of his epistles spoke of the patience of God, the patience of the Lord, makrothumia, which is salvation. God's patience is infinite. His salvation is all-encompassing. And very merciful. Keeping righteousness and doing mercy for thousands. We've shown, and Romans, the epistle, shows throughout that God's righteousness is salvation. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. For therein the righteousness of God is revealed. Salvation, because the righteousness is revealed. The righteousness of God is our salvation. God has made him, Jesus Christ, to be righteousness for us. That's called salvation. He is the Lord our righteousness in Jeremiah 23, 6. Yahweh Tzitkenu, as the Hebrew puts it. The Lord our righteousness. Io Sedek, as the Greek puts it in an attempt to transliterate the Hebrew. Yo Tzedek, from Sedeka, for righteousness. The Lord our righteousness. Keeping righteousness, it says, and doing mercy for thousands. This is one of the examples of divine understatement. You remember Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant. We're going to make much of that passage soon, which is poured out for many. Many is an understatement because as we've learned from connecting Romans 5.18 with 19, many equals all of humanity without exception. In 1 Timothy, Paul made it blatant. There is only one God, one Lord, one God, and one mediator between God and man, all of mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as the ransom price for all. Many equals all. The Son of Man has come not to be served, but to serve, to minister, and to give his life as a ransom for many, Mark 10.45, Matthew 20.28. 20, the many equals all. It's a, an example of divine humility. Showing mercy to thousands is showing mercy to all. Divine understatement. Even God, especially God, is humble. Divine humility. Showing mercy. Doing mercy, literally in the, in the Greek, for thousands. Taking away lawlessness and unrighteousness and sin. Taking it away. The epitome verse, the peak verse that we're coming up to in Hebrews 9 is 9.26. Now, once in the juncture of the ages, the end of the old age, the beginning of the new, the termini of two ages at the cross, he appeared to put away sin, sin per se, lawless deeds per se, to put away sin by the offering of himself, Hebrews 9.26. And this squares, of course, with John the Baptizer's declaration, look, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Paul goes even further and says, he became sin so that we, meaning the world in context, would be made the righteousness of God in him. We live in a world that is reconciled, but yet unredeemed. If you don't think it's unredeemed look around study the trends we are reaching the possibility of a critical mass of evil in our time which is the opportunity for God to display his majesty in a greater way than ever before so it's not a time to panic it's not a time to fear it's not a time for worry and alarm it's a time to allow Yahweh to parade his mercy in front of us. Now, this is the one that's a little tricky. And not cleansing the guilty. Not cleansing the guilty. Very definitely, he says, 
I do not clear the guilty. The complete Jewish Bible, which I always find excellent, says, yet not exonerating the guilty. And equally, the Christian Standard Bible, he will not leave the guilty unpunished, it says. How does that square with his majestic mercy? We'll see in a minute. The English Standard Version says, who will by no means clear the guilty. All of these are true as to sense. So how do we square the fact that God is very merciful to thousands, which is an understatement for all, and yet he doesn't clear the guilty. The guilty here is a singular. It is ton, which is the Greek article, T-O-N, and then the word enochon, E-N-O-C-H-O-N. Ton enochon. He does, there's no way, he says, I'm going to clear the guilty. The guilty is one person. Ton enochon. I'm not going to clear the guilty. You know what he's saying here? Instead, I will become the guilty one. And I will receive the judgment upon sin. I am the judge. I will receive the judgment. God is the judge of all in Hebrews 12.23. He will never clear or exonerate the guilty. And so he becomes the guilty in his son. Does it not say in the scripture, he made him who knew no sin to become sin. That's the guilty. Ton ekon. Jesus Christ became the guilty. Does not the scripture say he was made a curse for us and therefore made the curse of the law? For cursed says the law is every man who hangs upon the tree. And Jesus is every man hanging on the tree. He is the guilty one whom God refused to clear of guilt. So in his death, he was delivered over for us. Delivered over for us. Remember the teacher, probably the teacher of the Qumran community of the Dead Sea Scrolls, who's guilty of some of the Gnostic Gospels, He's the one that said, well, God's going to hand over these people. He hands over these people. He hands over these people. He says it over and over again in Romans 1, 24, 126, 128. And Paul says, when he gets to talk, he says, let me tell you who God handed over. He handed over his son for us, for us all, that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. He was handed over for our sins and raised up on account of our justification. By his suffering, the many will be justified, says Isaiah 53, 11. The many, again, Paul interprets as all. And I think Paul's pretty correct in his interpretation. If Paul interprets a verse, I agree with Paul because Paul is as anointed and as inerrant in his interpretation as the prophets themselves were. So when it says that he, my righteous one, by his ordeal shall justify the many, then I agree with Paul that the many equals all. In Romans 5.18, for in Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. So how does the much mercy square with God refusing to clear the guilty? Very easily. The guilty that he refused to clear is the son whom he made to be sin. And Jesus Christ, the Son of Man, says, All judgment has been given to me. All judgment has been given to me. All judgment because I am the Son of Man, in John 5.22 to 5.27. So what are you going to do with that judgment? I'll receive the judgment on the lawless deeds of mankind. I will be made sin willfully and willingly. I will be made a curse for you. I will be the guilty one. I will be the transgressor. I will be the one who bears the consequences, the wages of sin. For the wages of sin is death for all mankind, but the gift of God is eternal life for all mankind because of the one 
whom God refused to clear of guilt. But in his resurrection, he was made alive. In his resurrection, he himself was justified in Romans 3.26 because the one who died is justified in Romans 6.7 and Jesus is the one who died. Yea, rather, says the King James, is risen from the dead and makes intercession for us. And Hebrews adds, yes, he does, in order to save us completely. Then he goes on to say, bringing the lawless deeds of the fathers upon the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. We're supposed to follow the bouncing ball on this one. The third and the fourth generation and on and on. Why do these sins go from the fathers to the children to the children's children to the children's children? Because they end up on the cross in Jesus Christ on the Son of God. And there they are judged. And all the sins of our present time following the cross, the ball bounces backwards, 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 and falls on him. He takes away the sin of the world, and that's the sin of all human beings of all times and places. In 1 John 2, 1, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, the propitiation for our sins, and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the whole world. That's who Jesus Christ is, and that's whom Yahweh announced himself to be. So you know what happened in, Rome, in the next verse? Moses immediately bowed down to the ground and worshipped. This will bring you to the threshold of worship and then bring you to the act of worship. The whole goal that I've had for 45 years in teaching this word of God is to allow God to manifest his mercy. And he's done it in stages and he's done it gently and he's spoon-fed us. And now he's ready to give us the full meal of the majesty of his mercy. And the reason for this is that we would all respond in worship. And that's why I pray that we present our bodies as a living sacrifice, our souls to a faithful creator, especially in times like these. Our spirit to the God of doctrine and our heart to be taught of God. So it's always with the knowledge that Jesus made purification for sins for all. That he in doing so became sin. Became ton et anakon. Became the guilty. Became a curse. And thus bore the consequences of the sins of the fathers to the children and the children's children and on and on. And that he is now seated enthroned at the right hand of the majesty on high. If our exegesis of scripture is not concentrated on Christ, call it officially Christological concentration, then we will come up with a wrong interpretation of scripture ultimately or at best an incomplete demonstration of the gospel. We may be knowledgeable on many things. We may be beautiful in our communication. We may be elegant in our wording. We may have all these things in our expression. But we do not have the gospel fully. And the word of God is not fully in our mouths without understanding this mercy. We always have to have this in mind in our exegesis of Hebrews as we continue our theological exegesis, especially in Hebrews 9. And that's where we are. And this is what we've come up with in translation so far in Hebrews 9. Now, indeed, the first covenant, he said, had associated with it regulations for service and a this-worldly or cosmic sanctuary. The Jews of the Old Covenant even up until the time of A.D. 70, considered the temple where the tent eventually came to be a depiction of the universe and, in fact, a kind of microcosm of the universe. So in Jesus' words in Matthew 24, in which he predicted not the end of the world but the end of the age governed by the stone temple, he used language of cosmic catastrophe because he was speaking not of the dissolution of the material universe, but of the destruction of the temple, which was the end of a universe 
in one way of speaking. A tent was furnished. It says the first compartment, he's speaking, of course, of the wilderness tabernacle, in order of approach, of which is called the holies, the holies, literally, or the holy place, in which was both the lampstand and the table of the presentation of the loaves. Behind the second curtain was a section called the holy of holies, having a golden ark, golden altar, and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, which held the golden jar of manna, the rod of Aaron that sprouted, and the tablets of the covenant. And above the ark, the winged living beings called the cherubim of glory. And we studied that last week and the meaning of that, the cherubim of glory, overshadowing the place of expiation. The place of expiation is the place where sin is removed. That place is a person. The person is Jesus Christ represented in this picture about which things it is not necessary to speak of in detail right now. And I've been very tempted to speak of these things in detail and have even recently of the cherubim of glory, but we will continue on. Verse 6, these things being prepared just so. I hit this on a Wednesday recently and I said I'd hit it again. I'm going to right now. These things being prepared just so. They had to be furnished just so, set up just right because of the meaning of the message. Into the first room of the tent, the priests kept entering all the time. Diapantos, says the Greek. Regularly, repeatedly. And of course, they were performing their service, it says, their priestly ministry. But into the second compartment, the Holy of Holies, once a year, only the archpriest goes. That is a reference to Leviticus 16 and a gesture toward the Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And the priest, the Kohen Hagadol, goes once a year, never without blood, never without blood and we have messages coming up that I will call following the blood trail which he offers in behalf of himself and for the sins committed in ignorance by the people now we've said that the similarity ends with Jesus Christ who entered into the holy of holies in heaven by means of his own blood, his own death, and we're going to show that death equals blood in Hebrews 9, 15 to 17. We're going to show, in fact, I'm going to show and give you my reasons why I believe that the documents, 27 of which comprise the book we call the New Testament, is rightly titled the New Testament. Why it's rightly titled the New Testament. Those are messages coming up. Don't know whether it will be on a Wednesday or a Sunday, but it's coming. And I'll explain to you why I think it's a good title. Jesus Christ, the one great archpriest, entered in once and for all and forever, not just once a year. The similarity ended there. He does not offer sins, sin offering on behalf of himself because he is the sinless one, unlike the priests of the Old Covenant unlike the archpriest even, whether it's Aaron or his sons, because he knew no sin. And for the sins committed in ignorance by the people is not the totality of it either, for he did not die only for sins committed in ignorance, but for all sins, whether they're cognizance, willful, or non-willful sins. And not just the people of Israel, but the people of the whole world. John speaking as a Jew said, not for our sins only. John speaking as a Christian said, not for our sins only. There's no limited atonement. That's another thing where Calvin dropped the ball, or at least his students did, dismally, abysmally, maybe even blasphemously. Now, this is where I want to pick up again. We've compared these things being prepared just so. Providentially, everything's right. God showed Moses in heaven a pattern to follow perfectly, showed him the furnishings, and when the furnishings were all set up and perfectly arranged just so, then the priests went in. 
Then the archpriest went in, never without blood. And we're going to see how Jesus went in, never without blood, not without blood, but not the blood of others, but his own blood and what that means. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. That's the correlation. These things being prepared just so in Hebrews 9, 6, correlates with when the fullness of time came. These things being just so, only the archpriest entered. The full, when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son. When did God send forth his son? We don't know the calendar of God as much as we'd like to guess and think that certain calendar days represent certain feasts and we can predict things happening down the road. We can't. If the calendar is in God's mind, not man's mind, not in a Jewish calendar, not in any calendars. There's a reason why God acts when he acts and it's in his own mind. Only the Father knows. Not even the Son of Man knows, Jesus said on one occasion. When was the fullness of time? Well, we do know some of this in Galatians 4.4, the first divine mission, beginning with the birth of Jesus Christ from the Virgin Mary, ending with his resurrection from the dead, his exaltation and enthronement and coronation. What constituted the fullness of time? What was the right time for God to send out ex apostello, his son. For one thing, we know this. The super proliferation of transgressions was going on. It, inst- it, instigated, it was instigated not by Moses' sin originally, but by Moses' law. Not by Adam's sin. Not by Adam's sin originally, but by Moses' law, which caused an intensification of the proliferation of the commission of sins. And it got to a place where it was just perfect timing to send the Son to become sin, that we would be made the righteousness of God in him. So what constituted this fullness of time, this pleroma of the time? For one thing, the super proliferation of transgressions instigated by the entrance of the law of Moses into the human situation. Why was so much proliferation of sin occurring? Because of the law. Because the law was hijacked by sin, which Paul teaches very clearly in Romans 7, in which most preachers, most of us as preachers, miss entirely the whole point of Romans 7. So Adam is the one through whom sin entered the world and sin and death spread to all human beings as is clearly manifested by the fact that everyone sins. Have you noticed that? If you say, well, I haven't, then you're guilty of the worst sin of all which is the ultimate sin of untruth and self-deception and I guess today they call it narcissism. And everyone dies. So I'll say that again. The super proliferation of transgressions instigated by the entrance of the law into the human situation. Adam is the one man through whom sin entered the world and death spread by that to everyone. And so in Adam all die. 1 Corinthians 15, 22. Death reigned, Paul says, from Adam, through whom sin as a power came, and death because of sin, and reigned from Adam until Moses. That's Romans 5, 14. The Mosaic law slipped in as a kind of side issue so that the trespass would actually increase. That's Romans 5, 20. The law came by Moses, and this was by the will of God. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, and this by the overruling will of God, 
the will of God to save all mankind in 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, and to bring us all to the full knowledge of the truth, which we're all coming to, whether you know it or not. Whether you believe it or not, and whether you want to or not, we're all going to come to the knowledge of the Son of God, the epinosis, super-transcendent knowledge, and to the unity of the faith in him. And every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to a, a, a confess in a way that is worshipful, grateful, and a response to the salvific work of Christ. Every knee will bow. Every eye will see him who was pierced. And this will cause quite the reaction, as we're going to see, and as I'm going to portray in a moment here. The law came by Moses, and this was by the will of God. Grace and truth came by Jesus Christ, and this was by the overruling, universally saving will of God. This is the situation that pertained in the world and in Israel in the fullness of time. In Galatians 4, 4, when everything was just so. When God sent forth his son to redeem all those under the law and thus under the increase of transgression. Acts 3.20, Peter's famous sermon at the beautiful gate after the restoration of the man under severe disability. God has yet to send Apostello Jesus, who was appointed Messiah for you, whom heaven must retain until the times of the restoration of all things. We know that. Apokatastasis Panton, which all of the prophets spoke. God spoke univocally with one voice in all the prophets, not some of them from time immemorial of this one thing called the restoration of all things, universal restoration. If all the prophets spoke of it, Peter the Apostle spoke of it, Paul expanded on it and even made it more intensification with the word anakephaliosis, everything summed up under the head of Christ, then who am I to say something different from that? If God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself is the definitive statement of the New Testament and the gospel, then why am I inviting people to do all these things in order to get right with God? I'm not a gospel preacher, am I? No, I'm not. Not if I'm doing that. Not if I'm not proclaiming the good news. When God was given an opportunity to parade his majesty before Moses, what did he do? He preached the gospel. He preached the gospel to him of his manifold and universal mercy and of his not holding acquitting of his not acquitting of the guilty one Jesus Christ and of his magnificent mercy which is his majesty what will constitute the fullness of time or the right time for that sending in which God will say again to his son go son restore all things he doesn't say, go, son, and rapture a few people out, and then we'll pound the hell out of the earth and the remaining population. That is a, not only a misnomer, that is a heresy. Not only a heresy, but thank God it's preached in ignorance or God would consider it blasphemy. When he comes, it is to restore all things. It is to raise the dead. It is to transform the evil into the supreme good. What will constitute the fullness of time for that sending? For what does Hebrews 9.28 say? He who bore the sins of many, many equaling all, will appear a second time bringing salvation. The result of his bearing of the sins of the world, he comes with that result in a manifestation, a glorious revelation of his universal mercy. He brings salvation to those who wait for him. There you say, oh, there it is. It's only for those that wait for him. And guess what? Everybody's waiting for him, whether they know it or not. Even the impersonal creation is waiting for him, according to Paul. You won't say to a tree, hey, are you waiting for Messiah? Are you waiting for the apocalypse of the sons of God? The, the tree won't say yes. It might wave a little bit at you. It might even do like the one in front of my house, drop a branch on your car every time the wind blows. 
but yes, all of creation is waiting and groaning in anticipation. The dead are waiting in 1 Peter 4, 6. The living are waiting. People are waiting. They don't know for what, but they know, they, God knows they're waiting for the salvation that will be brought to them in the second appearing of the great archpriest, Jesus Christ. What will constitute the fullness of time or the right time for that event is a good question. Because nobody knows no matter who claims to know. When I was in Bible college in the 70s, they said it was 81, 1980. The Lord's coming back in 1981. Then he didn't. So they said 84. And then they said, well, Israel became a nation in 48. So you add 40 years to that. And then misunderstanding the whole AD 70 trajectory, he didn't come then. Then it was Y2K. Then it was 2012. I don't know what the next one is, but I'm, I'll be around when, it's, when the preachers of it will be made fools of again, or, well, what we meant was, yeah, right, okay, sure, sure. What will constitute the fullness of time? For God has yet to send his son a second time into this world, this time for universal manifestation of his mercy through Jesus Christ. When the time was full for Christ to come the first time, listen carefully, was for the hyper-super-proliferation of grace. The hyper-super-proliferation of grace. For where sin abounded, that means superbounded, grace abounded much more. So when did Jesus Christ come? Right at the moment when sin was seen to have proliferated itself in a super way, in a critical mass kind of a way. That's when he comes because grace abounds much more. The grace of Jesus Christ. When the time is full for Jesus to be sent a second time, I, I don't know, but I do have a question. When it's time, the fullness of time, and things are just right and just so, for Jesus to come a second time, my question is, will it be when mankind has come to the brink of self-destruction through the proliferation of evil? When it becomes evident to presidents and dictators, and sometimes they're one, and kings and rulers and people and the population of the earth that military solutions never work, that social solutions never work, that human solutions never work. When they find out that human solutions do not work, when he comes a second time, therefore, according to a lot of preachers, what, he's, what will he bring? if the proliferation of evil has reached a peak. When he comes a second time, will he bring condemning, catastrophic judgment? Well, Hebrews 9.28 says that when the great archpriest appears a second time, it will be with salvation. Acts 3.20-21, the apostle Peter announces that when God sends his son Jesus, whom God appointed as Messiah, it will be to bring times of refreshment from the presence of the Lord. The immediate presence of the Lord will mean times of refreshment. It will be to consummate the times of the restoration of all things, which initially came with his first appearing. For as Hebrews 9.11 says, our other 9.11, jump down there, now the Messiah has come as an archpriest of good things that have come, and that's the radical alteration of the human situation through the reconciliation work of God on the cross in Christ. And the coming Things that are coming. That's the radical alteration of the human and creational condition. What happened in the cross was the universal alteration of the human situation from one of enmity to God to reconciliation of God to God. God reconciled the world to himself in Christ. That's a universal alteration of the human and the creational situation. When Jesus Christ comes again, he will effect the universal alteration of the human and creational condition. All creation will be liberated from its slavery to corruption. 
All of humanity will be raised to life in Christ. Because I live, you will live also. As in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. And that's the resurrection change, the radical alteration of condition. And lucky you and me, we get to live in between the radical change of the human situation and the radical change of the human condition, and we're in between. We know that we're reconciled to God. We know that the world is reconciled to God. If we don't, we can't preach the gospel. We can call ourselves gospel preachers if we want, but we're lying to ourselves. If we know, the, we know we're on that side of history in between, where we know that God has reconciled the world to himself, but we know that the world is not redeemed from its slavery to corruption, that people are not redeemed from their slavery to corruption, but that that time is coming. And we know that that time is coming. And so perhaps the need for world salvation will be so apparent that human, political, military, and governmental solutions will be shown to be supremely ineffective, just like the priest's offerings of the Old Covenant were totally ineffective to do away both with sins and the consciousness of sins. In fact, in that Yom Kippur celebration every year, sins were brought even more sharply to memory. And so perhaps, well... Again, it's a question. What if he comes right at the moment when the situation in world occurrence will be the perfect time for his coming, for the universal appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ? For the sacred text says God will send Jesus from heaven in Acts 3.20, that we wait for a Savior from heaven in Philippians 3.20, who will change these present bodies of our humiliation and make them conformable to his own body of glory. That we have turned from idols, those of us that have turned from idols, to wait for his Son from heaven in 1 Thessalonians 1.9-10. Titus 2.13, we wait with tiptoe anticipation for the coming of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and that our great archpriest will appear a second time without sin. That means without having to deal with sin, without having to become sin. He had already become sin and has now made the righteousness of God for us. He will therefore come with the only thing left, salvation. It's the only thing he's got left for the whole world is salvation. This Jesus is the son of righteousness in Malachi 4.2, in some translations 3.20. He will arise with healing in his rays. Healing is a word for salvation. The son of righteousness will arise. That means he will come over the horizon with healing in his rays. Wings which are rays. And that's because Jesus Christ is not only the son, S-U-N, of righteousness, but he's the sum of righteousness. And righteousness, God's righteousness, is man's salvation. Jesus Christ is our righteousness. And the name Yeshua means Yahweh, our salvation. This Jesus, the son of righteousness, arises with healing in his wings, not with a condemning judgment. He will appear as great archpriest and sacrifice without sin being an issue, but with salvation. For his first appearing, he was made to be sin that we, and that we doesn't mean we, the elect ones, the limited elect, we the church, we Israel, means we the world. So that's one time that song, I hate that song, but it's actually correct when you think of it in this context. We are the world. Yeah, we is the world. Okay, now I got to get that earworm out of my head. If you ever have a song that keeps replaying in your head, one you hate, here's, here's my cure for it. Just start to sing Rock of Ages and you'll find yourself singing Rock of Ages and that what they call an earworm, that song keeps going over and over in your head until it's driving you crazy, is gone. 
It works. It works for me. I don't know if it'll work for you. So, this Jesus will appear with salvation. Without sin being an issue, without yours being an issue, without mine being an issue, without the sin of the great sinners being an issue. Because God made him to be righteousness for us, the world. Jesus is Yahweh to Sidkenu. The Lord is our righteousness. Kurios Yosedek. Jeremiah 23, 6 and the Septuagint. The sun and the sum of righteousness. The righteousness that Jesus is, is our salvation. He was made to be sin for us, and now God has made him to be righteousness for us. Not only righteousness, but holiness and redemption and wisdom. You name it. If it's salvific, God made Jesus to be it for us. Now, imagine the shock. Will there be a shock when he manifests himself? Oh, yeah. The biggest shock is going to be to those who thought he was coming in vengeance and condemnation. That's going to be a shock. You know what? It's going to be a shock that's so shocking it's going to destroy them in transforming them by the grace of God. We're all going to be surprised. Don't get me wrong. Well, we've been studying the word. Well, what about you? You've been studying the word for 51 years. and uh, So it's not going to be a surprise. Yes, it is. You think we've gathered all the truth we can gather about him? You think we've seen him in his full glory? You think we've seen him in his full splendor? We're all going to be surprised. All of us are. Shocked and surprised. Imagine the shock of recognition in Israel that Yahweh is Yeshua. It's happening little by little here or there and elsewhere, lots of people. The shock of recognition by the blasphemers, the idolaters, the takers of Jesus' name in derision and disgust. Imagine their shock when he comes not to damn but to save them. All this time I've been saying that you're coming to damn us. All this time, I thought, God damn, but God saves. Yeshua is God saving. In fact, I knew, as people say, you know, you see the Western, I'll see you in hell, you're, you're going there first, boom, etc. Like, they have no idea, of course, what they're talking about. Not because they don't know what hell is, but because they don't know that hell isn't. And that Jesus Christ endured what we call hell and endured eternal death and endured the suffering not of any man but of a divine man in the cross. Incomprehensible. The shock even of those who loved him, those of you who love him, those of us who would anticipate his coming with great joy and expectation. Because his coming is going to explode all of our limited expectations. Because they're limited. They can't help but be. The shock to all those who expected the God of vengeance and terrible wrath when they see him and they receive that kick in the teeth that Jesus was the one who bore their sins, who endured the wrath that they expected for the evildoers of the human race. Indeed, this salvation brought by Jesus, the elect one, Jesus, the foreknown one, Jesus, the one who became the guilty one, the curse of the sin hijacked law. For us all, who became sin for us, again, who became the guilty, whom God refused to clear, to acquit of all the sins of all the world, he was not acquitted, who bore their wages, the wages of sin, Jesus, the only sinless one who has made the only reprobate, the only guilty one, the sole transgressor, who at once is the solely elect one, the sir, the single inclusive representative in whom all the human race are derivatively elected for salvation. 
For according to the unbroken golden link chain, as many as God foreknew, and who did he God foreknow? His son is the foreknown one in 1 Peter 1.20, and all are foreknown in him. As many as God foreknew, this is the golden link chain, he called. And that means he called with the effectual call of the gospel. And as many as he called, God justified. And as many as God justified, he glorified. That's a golden link chain. You can't break the links of that chain. And if he justified all by the one righteous act of the one righteous man, Jesus Christ, and he did in Romans 5.18, if he justified all and he glorifies all that he justified, then who do you think gets glorified? Everybody gets glorified in the majesty of God's mercy in Jesus Christ. You say, I don't like that because that means that people I want to go to hell are going to receive mercy. Sorry. The one who thought he was going to hell and deserved it more than anybody, the chief of sinners, Paul, became the chief messenger of this message. What do you think of that? The person I know that deserves hell more than anybody else is me. And I'm preaching the gospel of mercy because I received mercy, and at the moment when I thought I deserved hell the most and felt like I was going to tip over into that abyss forever was the moment he pulled me up. By mercy. It was pure mercy. It was pure grace. It was pure him. So I don't preach myself, but Christ Jesus the Lord and myself as servant of yours for his sake. So as we move to a close, consider these things. The text had already announced before that golden link chain that through the one righteous act of the one righteous man, Jesus Christ, an act of faithful obedience, even to the limitless extent of the death of the cross, all receive the justification of life. In Adam all die, but in Christ all will be made alive. What person does not die because they are in Adam? What person does not die because they are in Christ? All universally in Adam die. All universally in Christ are made alive. Where sin once reigned and death through sin, now grace reigns through righteousness, resulting in eternal life for all human beings over the course of all time. Romans 5.21, Romans 6.23. How can you dare say that? Someone will say, I have been saying it, but saying it incrementally, piece by piece, little by little, here a little, there a little, since about 2010, and earlier than that in our use of John's Gospel until the Holy Spirit's making it eminently clear. Through Adam's act of disobedience, the many, that's all, were constituted as sinners. Through Moses' law, that's the progression in Romans 5, sinners became more prolific in their sinning. Through Jesus Christ, grace overcame, outdid, and outshined the proliferation of sin. For where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, Romans 5.20. And eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord replaced the wages of sin, which is death, for all of humankind. The wages of sin is death. Jesus tasted death, the wages of sin, for a limited elect. No, it doesn't say that. It says for everyone. In Hebrews 2.9, that's the whole premise of our teaching now for over 1,200 pages of notes, which we have on record. The whole premise of our teaching is we see Jesus, who tasted death for everyone, crowned with glory and honor. Through Adam's act of disobedience, the many, all, were constituted as sinners. Through Moses' law, sinners became more prolific in their sinning. Through Jesus Christ, grace, in its hyper-proliferation, overcame, outshined, outdid the proliferation of sin. Through the just and mysterious law of the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
all the evils perpetrated and perpetuated by the human race are converted into the supreme good. If you don't believe that, ask Rahab the prostitute. If you don't believe that, ask Paul the apostle. If you don't believe that, next time I'm in the hall, ask me. How this salvation destroys the evil that men do. How it transforms the evildoers so that it's the transformation of the doers of the evil. In that transformation, the evildoer is annihilated into nothingness. Great and terrible is our God. Great and terrible is our Lord. Will you sugarcoat that, Pastor? No, I won't. I'll accentuate it. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Hebrews 10.31, quoting Deuteronomy. Do you want to sugarcoat it? No, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. It's a terrible thing when all your life you didn't believe in him and there he is. It's a terrible thing when all your life you thought you were guilty and deserved to be damned and there he is justifying you, loving you. Terrible thing. It was a terrible thing the day I met the living God. Because he was everything I did not expect him to be. He went so far beyond my concepts of love that he destroyed me. But here I am. Why is it a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God? Because in the hands of the living God, a radical transformation is wrought. One which kills the evil, slays the evildoer in us all. And there is one in us all. And transforms us into the very image of the Lord. Makes us in God's image. Conforms us to the image of God's Son, of Christ, who is the image of God. See now that I am He. And there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal. And there is none that can deliver out of my hand. Who said that? The same Yahweh who announced himself and paraded his majesty before Moses. Deuteronomy 32, 39. In John 10, 29, Jesus actually takes that and puts it in his own mouth, for he is that Yahweh who kills and makes alive, and he put it into the realm of eternal life. He said the same thing as Yahweh, the one who is with the, one who is the, with the Father and one with the Father. He said, see now, I am he. None can deliver out of my hand. And what did he say about my hand? In my father's hand is where you are, my sheep, to whom I give eternal life. You are in my father's hand, and he is greater than all. It's a great and terrible thing to fall into the hand of that living God. And he said, and you are in my hand, and no one snatches you out of my hand, and I am. And the Father are one. So Jesus took that word in Deuteronomy 32, 39. There is none that can deliver out of my hand. And he turned it on its head because he became the guilty one for us. And he said, no one takes you out of my Father's hand because I gave you eternal life. It's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God who gives you eternal life and transforms you. Makes you someone you weren't before. First Samuel 2.6, Hannah says, The Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. This Lord, this Lord God, delivered his son over for sins, brought him down to the grave. But then he brought him back up from the grave on account of our justification on account of the blood that made the everlasting new covenant efficacious for all of humanity in all of its times and places. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the great and terrible God. What a good time to bounce. It's a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the great and terrible God in the presence of whom all the gods shudder in terror and then melt away. For the great and terrible God is majestic in his mercy and all-powerful in his saving, transforming, transfiguring grace. 
So when the Messiah appeared the first time, it was to put away sin by the offering of himself at the crux of the ages, in the termini of the eons. When the Messiah, our great archpriest, appears the second time, it's to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him, which means all of humanity, whether they know it or not, the quick and the dead, the living and the dead, and the liberation of all creation which groans in anticipation of his appearing, in anticipation of the apocalypse, the unveiling of the sons of God, when those whom God foreknew in his Son, called into his Son, justified by his Son's blood, are glorified by God's omnipotent grace and all permeating mercy so in this time in between the two appearings the two alterations we the new covenant community the church of the firstborn we're the representatives of that mercy that grace we are agents of that goodness of God one translation said to Moses when God said to Moses I will make all my goodness to parade before you. We are agents of that goodness, agents and reps of the beneficence and the benevolence of God. We are commanded and equipped not to be overcome by the evil of our time as it proliferates and super proliferates in our time, but rather to overcome evil with good as imitators of God who converts the evils of the human race into the supreme good and as participants in the divine solution to the problem of evil. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. He is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Romans 12:21. Be not overcome by evil even as it proliferates, even as it reaches a critical mass, but rather overcome evil with this ultimate divine good, this majesty of divine mercy, this gospel of the grace of God. And Father, as we begin to close with a hymn to our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and his saving grace, I thank you for the message of your majestic mercy. I ask, Father, for this congregation and for each individual and for all of our visitors as well, that if it is, in fact, the petition of their hearts, our hearts, that you will parade your mercy before us. Show us your glory, Father. In Jesus' name, amen.